A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Thanks very much for joining us on a special Friday afternoon edition of the show. The reason we're coming to you on a Friday is that the Irish Times Sports Council Sportswoman of the Year Awards has just taken place. Fiona Coughlin named a Sportswoman of the Year after leading the Irish rugby team to a Grand Slam. So congratulations to Fiona and to the, the entire team. I mean, sure, sure, you know, it is a team sport and all of that, mm. but it's nice to get the individual awards. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, Being a member know, of that team. Listen, so you know, if there could be 15 winners, yeah. I'm sure that's how Fiona would like it to go down. But, but uh, uh, hey, well, she's, she walks away with the trophy, yeah. so. So what are you going to do? We've a couple of great interviews coming up for you today. Our first guest also received a major honour, actually, at the awards, a Lifetime Achievement Gong, and she has a remarkable story. On leaving school in the 1960s, Rosemary Smith became a dress designer, a model, and opened up her own dress shop, but actually made her name in a rather different environment as one of the world's top rally drivers. Or if yeah. I can't picture two um, industries, I don't know what either industry was like in the 1960s, but just using educated guesswork, I'd imagine it's... They were quite different. Yeah, well, they're still pretty different now. So um, you would have thought that the the gap certainly wasn't any smaller in the 1960s and 1970s for uh, a young Irish woman. But um, I was looking back through the Irish Times archive, actually, for the last couple of days. um, And to go back all the way back to the 1960s and to see um, just what a huge figure Rosemary was uh, in Irish life. When she first came on the scene, obviously... It's it's newsworthy. It would be newsworthy today if a if a model was also rally driving to an unbelievably high standard. Um, but it was huge, huge news at the time, and all these headlines: Miss Smith wins again. Uh, it's kind of how it's reported, as opposed to Rosemary or uh, nice. Smith or whatever. But it was always it's, it's with unbelievable regularity. Miss Smith wins again, um, and she was a huge, huge figure in Irish life at that time. But and she would have had a lot of sort of early successes uh, at Irish level and at European and international level uh, right throughout the 60s and right throughout the 1970s and regarded as kind of the the, the single biggest figure, a female figure in uh, Irish rally driving. But also kind of interesting that she was able to do it in a sport where uh, the men's and women's competitions weren't separate, that they were in the same way as Nina Carberry or Katie Walsh or these guys um, they're up against the fellas 
all the time, and mm. you know they they don't they're they're not uh, aiming to be the, the first woman past the post in any race that they're that they're uh, entered in. They're there because they want to win it, and that's that's Rosemary. That that was Rosemary's uh, frame frame of mind as well. Some of the events around that time in the rally world seemed absolutely insane. We're going to talk to her about some of what what she some of the races there, and particularly there was one from London to. Mexico, Mexico, the nice trip there. In, it was in, in, in conjunction with the World Cup in Mexico in 1970. I'm interested in that one. Interest, interesting a lot more. We'll get to all of that around the time that Rosemary was starting to win these sort of races. Our second guest today was working out how she could forge a career in sports journalism. She ended up getting into Sports Illustrated, where she struck a hugely important blow for women in that industry. She took out a lawsuit against the Commissioner of Major League Baseball after being refused entry to the locker room at the 1977 World Series between the New York Yankees and the LA Dodgers. It's another great story. We hope you'll enjoy, and we'll get to that. A little bit later on, but first up is Rosemary Smith. Thanks very much for popping into the studio. You're welcome. You're receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Irish Times Sports Council Sportswoman of the Year Awards this year. Uh, I guess when people uh, receive these kind of awards, sometimes they can be quite sheepish about it and, uh, you know, a little bit, why me? And sometimes they can think, well, why didn't they get it before now? It's about time. (laughs) Which category do you fall into? The latter. Right. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I'm only joking. No, no, I was very honoured, obviously, to get it. But uh, no, I, I sort of feel, yeah, why me? Mm. I mean, when I look back over my life and, and you know, it, it seems to have gone on forever. I, I mean, I started uh, rallying when I was very young. And, you know, it just, it was something that was a um, hobby first. And then it turned into, you know, it was a professional thing from there on. I was lucky in as much that I was very tall, very slim, long blonde hair and long false eyelashes. And the competition manager for the company that I was first taken on by, uh, he the cars weren't that good at the time. And he thought, how are they going to get publicity? Because they actually weren't winning anything. Mm. So um, he saw me on a rally. Uh, actually, it was one of my first major rallies. It was the RAC in England. And then I did the uh, Monte Carlo rally. And at the end of that, I didn't know who he was. As I said, this big, fat, horrible, balding English man came up and says, you're going to drive on our team. And I said, I am not. And that was that. And my father was a very mild, calm man. And when I went home and I told him that this man had suggested I drive on their team, and I, I said, who did he think he was, more or less? And my father was really angry. It was the only time in my life I ever saw my father angry. Why? Because I'd turned down the offer. Okay. Because in the well, I've even now, I mean, very much so now, that if you get an offer like that, it's it's like a soccer player or a footballer or something, and the scouts are out looking for the new up and coming talent. But I mean, I wasn't sure that I had the talent to actually drive the cars well and fast. Uh, but I knew then afterwards. Once I, my mother actually, she was the one who wrote on my behalf to the company to say that I've rethought it now and I'd love to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know she had done it. It's very interesting, Rosemary, because oftentimes you had another career going at this stage or certainly when you left school, you were involved in fashion, you had a dress shop. A lot of parents would probably be happier for their child to pursue that route rather than going into a sport like rallying. Well, I enjoyed the dress designing all right, but, uh, you know, I mean, it just wasn't 
Wasn't a passion as such? No, it was right, not. Okay. And then also, uh, when I made and designed a lot of clothes, actually some of them were beautiful, but then I didn't get paid for them. And especially if I did them for brides. So they'd say, oh, yes, 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 I'll pay you, I'll pay you, I'll pay you. But once they were Mrs. Somebody, they said, oh, well, I'm not that person that I used to be, so I don't have to pay Really? Them. Oh, yeah. So one particular woman, I did her wedding dress, six bridesmaids, two little train bearers, the mother of the bride, her going away outfit. And I mean, at the time, it was about three or four thousand pounds, which was a lot of money. Mm. And that was it. And when I got on to her new husband and I said, and I knew him quite well. And I said, you know, I've got it. She'll put me out of business now. And he said, it's nothing to do with me. It's incredible. Yeah. So anyway, <clears throat> no, the, the design uh, was all right. But I knew once I started rallying, which it was in a very small way here in Ireland, and uh, the woman I started rallying with, uh, she knew I could drive uh, because my dad did a bit of racing and my brother did a bit of racing. Okay. But rallying was way over my head. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, at what point did you have an idea of what you were doing. When did you realise this was something that you could make into a career? Was it, you, oh, talk, no. you, you talked about that offer, but... No, no, no. That? I didn't think it would ever turn into a career. Right. Because uh, we did quite a few of the smaller rallies in Ireland and because she wanted to be seen to be driving, she would drive out at the start, then I'd take over about a mile or two out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, then I'd drive the rest of the rally and then just before the finish, she'd get in and drive into the finish. <laughs> <laughs> she never won a thing up to this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we were then finishing sort of third in the class and then second in the class and then we'd win the class. And, you know, they'd be saying, oh, this woman, isn't she very good? She's got so much better now. And uh, how it came out in the long run was that we were on a very narrow little country road and a man in front of us rolled his car into a ditch. Hmm. And, um, you know, I said, we've got to stop, we've got to stop. Don't stop, don't stop. So I stopped anyway, and I got out, and I just, are you okay? And uh, one man had broken his arm, but he was fine. He said, no, no, go on, you know, there is an ambulance coming, and all this sort of carry on. So we got back in the car, and then it all came out. But, you know, she then admitted, like, but her husband at that stage... Uh, sort of thought he realised that I could drive right? and then he would prepare the car for us so she would come as my navigator and I'd do all the driving and then as I say I did the RAC which is the big one in England and uh, well it was nothing is the same these days mm. no they won't drive right through the night any longer we used to drive day night day night day you know it was a very hard task and uh, anyway then another girl asked me to do a Monte Carlo rally and it was when I got there, this man from the motor company, he came over and he made the offer to me. But at the time, as I say, having slithered and slid around the Alps on snow and ice, which I'd never driven on, driven on before, it was just horrendous. When you did get the hang of it, when you <laughs> did start becoming very good at it, what was the reaction? Was it a very male-orientated, yes. macho world? What was the reaction of the men to this woman coming in and, initially competing with them and then beating them after a while? Well, some of them were absolutely fine. They were grand. A few of, I hate to say it, but a few of the Irish male drivers went, they'd say things like that, oh, wasn't she very lucky? Mm. You know, in sort of slightly derogatory fashion. But, um, no, I mean, when I got into it and I knew what I was doing, then I realised that, you know, I could do this. So I'd 
go and yeah, start beat them all, basically. And uh, I, I loved it then because, as I say, it was a job. I was getting paid to do a hobby, basically. The type of sport that you were in was... There aren't that many sports. Well, there are some, but where you're competing directly with men. So you would win a women's race, but that would also have you competing in the men's race and you'd place whatever yeah. you No, there were, there were no <coughs> women's races. <coughs> Excuse me. There were no women's races. Yeah. You see, we competed always against So yeah, yeah, I should say you came first out of the women yeah. and, the, and you'd be placed no, high. came first overall. And first, and first overall. And yeah, first overall. Yeah, yeah. 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 The... You talked about the attitude at the time. You talked about that first Englishman who, um, you know, kind of ordered you almost to join his team. There's a quote here. I'm just trying to get a handle on, on sure. the attitude at the time. It's quite a long quote, but if you bear with me, it's from the editor of uh, Raleigh Magazine at that time. Although they don't all by any means meet the standards set by, say, Russian discus throwers, girls who get to the top of international sport don't always hang on to characteristics which get masculine heads whipping around to the accompaniment of loud, appreciative noises. But Rosemary Smith isn't like that. She comes under the heading of pretty delectable bird by any standards. And she's shown she can pedal a motor car around an Alp or a racetrack with the best of them. It's just, it's just an incredible <laughs> quote. Was that fairly representative of the kind of attitude you would come up with? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. yes how, did you, how did you deal with that, more importantly? Did you, were you happy enough just to let it wash over yeah. you? Well, I mean... Just that I happened to be tall and slim, and I used to model a bit as well. Uh, as I say, that's the reason I got the, the works drive in the first place. Right. But uh, no, it, you see, it didn't strike me. Like the young girls today, they're very, they're full of confidence, and they love people looking at them and you know admiring them and so on. But I just wasn't brought up like that. Yeah. I mean, literally, children were seen and not heard, and then. Uh, you know, as I was growing, my brother and sister, who were older than me, but I got much taller than they were. And then the nuns in school would say things like, is it cold up there? And, oh, look, she's got snow in her hair, which was very... And then I started all the time, i sort of slouch instead of standing up straight. Now, if you look at the young girls today, they, they might be six foot four, but they're, they're straight as ramrods. They're gorgeous, Absolutely. But, you see, it wasn't ladylike to be very tall when I was growing up. <laughs> Seriously, it really wasn't. And my grandmother used to even say things like, my sister was lovely, she was small and dark, and, uh, you know, she was about five foot three, and I was 5'10". And uh, my grandmother used to say things like, well, I don't know where she came from because it's not our side of the family that would... <laughs> so it was obviously my mother's side. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's funny. No, nowadays, it's totally different. Did you see yourself as somebody, as a sort of a pioneer, somebody who was breaking down boundaries for women in sport? Uh, yes and no. But you see, remember in those days, there were, uh, people like Pat Moss was around, Anne Hall, Annie Rosquist. There were a lot of, of um, women drivers. There were far more in international rallying than there are nowadays. I don't know one of them that's in the World Rally Championship now. Mm. Not one. But the teams were different back then. You'd have three men drivers and you'd have one woman's driver. And uh, this is all the teams. Now, the first one of the first circuits of Ireland I ever did here, there were 16 women's crews. 16. I mean, it was incredible. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, absolutely incredible. I remember we interviewed Maeve Kyle in the past who ran for Ireland in the mm. Melbourne Olympics and also played hockey with great distinction for Ireland. <laughs> she said that there was a letter to this newspaper, to the Irish Times, and I think it was in 1956, which described her as a disgrace to motherhood and the Irish nation for 
competing in sport, essentially, for going over to Australia and actually running. Now, when we talked to her about that, she she and she said she, this is the way she felt at the time. She was just she had such support from her parents. She had such a love of sport mm. growing up that that kind of attitude was actually quite funny to her. It was just so mm. ridiculous. Mm. Even at the time, mm. she felt that way. Is that, was that the way you would feel about that kind of oh, yes. that kind of attitude back yes. then? Yes. But you, can, it, you can't take it too seriously or, or you certainly can't take things to heart or else you might never achieve anything. Well, unfortunately, I always took things to heart. I mean, oh, even you? nowadays, if something happens and somebody makes a sort of snide remark about something, you know, I think, what have I done wrong? Right. After all these years, it's extraordinary. It's either in you or, or it's not in you. No, if somebody said, oh, she didn't drive well today. Oh, my goodness, I'd... I, I know what's going on here, <laughs> but it sounds like you must have used it as fuel then, or motivation, or I was two different people. When I was out of the car, I was one person. When I was in the car, that was it. I was there to do a job, and that's how I took it. But even you know, when I started first, and people say, "But it's only a sport," you know, and I'd say, "Yeah, but I happen to be getting paid for a sport. So if it's, if it's a sport, it's also my job." Mm. And the attitude of some of the competition managers, they allowed you one mistake. I mean, really bad mistake. And the next one, you'd be out. And, I mean, to get a works drive, it was phenomenal. And uh, it just, so I was determined I wasn't going to be ousted. I was going to do, and, you know, I went out, first of all, to win the ladies. Then I went to win a class. And then I went for overall placings. So in the long run, I won five rallies outright. And I don't know how many class wins and coup de dames and all. But we went everywhere. I mean, we went Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Tasmania, North, South, East and West of America, all over Europe. London to Mexico was won in 1970. That sounded like a rough trip. That was a rough trip. That was about 17,000 miles. And uh, it started in London. And Lord Stokes, who was the head of, it was British Leyland, you know, the name's gone now. But he said it was at the very beginning. He said, well, girls, if you get as far as Dover, you know, that'll do me fine. Because we got so much publicity because we're all dressed in white suits and all this sort of carry on. And uh, that that spurred me on. I mean, I can tell you, getting from London to Dover out of 17,000 miles. And I said, wait, now, hire, come on. So we went three up because, you see, we drove 60 hours nonstop which is a long way. I, I don't know any, no rally nowadays does that. And um, then we we were doing fine. We went down, round, up and down and round in circles, all down around South America and up the uh, West Coast and so on. But we got up into the Andes itself. We were right up uh, at the top, you know, on the very, it was the highest point. And the fan belt went in our car. And of course, we didn't have a clue how to fix it. But do you remember Jimmy Greaves? Do you remember yeah, he, the footballer. Yeah. yeah, the footballer. Well, he was doing the same event with a man called Tony Fall. So they came up behind us and they said, no, no, we'll fix it. You know, don't worry, don't worry. And we got out of the car. Now, there was myself, a girl from Annemasse between France and Switzerland, Jeanette de Roland, and then there was my own co-driver, Alice Watson. And we turned around. Now, there was nothing up there. It's a total, well, it's like being on the moon, except I've never been on the moon yet. But, you know, it was like that and little shrubs and just dust and dirt. So they fixed the car for us and we started. I said, where's Alice gone? We looked around, no sign of Alice. And what had happened was that the cactus flies came out. Don't ask me where they came from. And 
They didn't touch me. They didn't touch the others. They didn't touch uh, Jeanette. They landed on Alice. And she was just a little green thing standing there like that. Oh, my God. And we started to try and knock these. Cactus flies are like um, a grasshopper, except they're about five inches long and they've all these big legs sticking around. They were all over, face, head, body, everything. And uh, the only thing I could think when we couldn't knock them over, I got the fire extinguisher at her and we blasted them that way and they all fell on the ground. Now, she looked as if she had a very bad dose of measles. But we got her back in the car anyway and she was sort of obviously shocked. And then we put her into the back of the car and we went on down. And then we looked and the next thing, from this little, tiny, slim little girl, she suddenly blew up to that size. And yeah, but we had her strapped onto the back seat. So, you know, it was okay. Well, I mean, it was okay for us. But we had to drive and drive and drive and drive. Jeanette didn't drive. So I was the driver. And then going down into Peru, we didn't know whether Alice was dead or alive in the back of the car. We kept sort of having, we had to cut her clothes off because, I mean, she would have strangled otherwise. And uh, we got to the very top of the mountain to go down into Peru. And it's very narrow. It's a one way. So from 12 midnight on that particular night, we had to stop and the traffic was coming up, you see. And I said, we can't stop here for another day. You know, she might be definitely dead by that stage. So the guards were saying, no, 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 you can't go. So I said, oh, yes, we can. And I just put my foot down. It was a wooden sort of barrier like this, drove straight through it and started down the mountain. It was all right until we got about a quarter way down. And then these enormous trucks were coming up with the lights flashing. And, you know, they have the very ornate. Now, this is about 3 a.m., so I just kept going and kept going. And we had blazing headlights. We had all the, you know, the auxiliary lights on the front of it. And, uh, you know, they just, they realised and I don't know, but they did keep over. A few of them were very narrow. <laughs> I mean, we were very narrow. And, and there was just a big high cliff wall here and there was another. So it was really narrow. So we got down to the end anyway and we got into the park ferme where all the cars were parked and... We had told, at the top of the mountain, we had told uh, one of the our service crew that Alice was sick, so make sure there was an ambulance down at the park for me. So they had one there waiting for us. But <clears throat> when we stopped the car, out of the blue, this girl, who was just a bystander, she came over and said, Hello, Rosemary, how are you? And I thought, oh, definitely, hallucinations have gone mad. <laughs> and... Uh, it actually was a girl who was here in Trinity in Dublin, and but her father was an ambassador or something out in um, wherever we, Lima, Peru, wherever we were, and she'd come out to see the rally come in, <laughs> and she'd wait till we came in. So we thought we were finished then. We thought we were out of the event because you must have the same number as you've started with finishing, and uh, we went to bed in the hotel, sort of saying, "Well, that's it." We had. 12, no, we had more. We had about 24 hours off. That was one of our days off, which were very few. And we were to leave again, say, 12 o'clock the next night. And I said to Alice, well, you know, no sign of Alice. Or I said to Jeanette, that, you know, Alice, if she doesn't come back, we can't go on. So anyway, about 10 o'clock, there was a knock on the door. And little Alice came in in a hospital gown, because all her clothes were gone, escorted by two hefty sort of <laughs> porters or whatever they were 
And she said, well, and she looked dreadful. She really looked dreadful. She said, well, we better get ready now because we'll be off in a few hours' time. And we strapped her into the back of the car again and she virtually slept from there until we got to wherever we went next. I don't know. Mm. You know, it was a very long way, though. And then bandits stopped us at another place. And then a mudslide came down another place. And then hailstones came down. Mm-hmm. And hailstones were like golf balls. They were like so. And a lot of the windscreens got broken. Luckily, ours didn't. But, uh, you know, it was, it was a very, very tough and event. And the three of you made it to the end? Oh, yeah, we won. <laughs> <laughs> what did you win? What was the prize? A thousand pounds and uh, a beautiful trophy. Big, 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 big trophy. And, uh, oh, no, it was great. But the only difficulty was... The night before we were to get into Mexico City and uh, it, was in, it was finishing in the Aztec Stadium in the city and we stayed about 300 kilometres outside it. Lovely. Uh, it was a hotel that an Englishman had gone out there years ago and it was a sugar plantation, but it was a hotel as well and he, he put all the, the remaining people, I think only 23 finished, 23 cars out of 200 and something. So uh, he had us there, lovely meal and all. It was really lovely. The next morning, the rain came down. It spilled rain. It was the first time they'd had rain in in the city for, I don't know, months, maybe years even. And we had to have a police escort in and then go into the stadium. Then all these hundreds and hundreds of people would be there in the stadium. We had no police escort. <laughs> there was nobody in the stadium. I mean, it was just a complete flop as far as that was concerned. And we got all dressed up, <laughs> had the eyelashes on and the little hat on and all the rest of it, you know. Uh, but, oh no, Alice had, had recovered at that stage. Because, I mean, she was in, it must have been nearly a week she was stuck in the back of the car. That's ah, an amazing uh, story. Yeah, R- yeah. R- Rogan, I just to go back to something you said earlier on, and that's having to, having almost a split personality when it comes to just mm. how you would be in normal life and then mm. how you would be as a competitor. Yeah. Do, do sports people have to have that, do you think? Is that, or is, is it, it just depends on the individual? Oh, you can't just say, on, this is how it needs to be. No, 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 no. Because, believe it or not, I was so shy, I could not. When I used to win things way back then, I would send my co-driver up first. I wouldn't go up. And all this thing of picking up a trophy and kissing it and all mm-hmm. this stuff, I just I I don't like it even to this day. I think it, it's like it's um, you know tin gods, but uh, no, I really I was so shy. So, but once I got in the car and I knew exactly what I was doing in the car, it was me and the car. I mean, I always had a co-driver, mm. but she was. They were wonderful. My co-drivers were wonderful. I'll, I'll say that always about them. They'd say you know straight on hundred left, hundred right, whatever the case may be. And even when I put them off the road, which I did from time to time, they'd say things like, oh, hard luck. Now, if I'd been the co-driver, I'd be screaming blue murder. But they were very good like that. Sounds like a pretty amazing life, really. Rosemary, pretty amazing career. You enjoyed it all? Oh, absolutely and completely. And even now I'm enjoying it because I'm involved and president of a lot of the you know, quite a few motor clubs. Next year I'm going to Colorado with the Sunbeam Tiger Club. And uh, we're going to do a hill climb called Pikes Peak, which is one of the highest hill climb hills in the world. Um, And incidentally, the record on that hill was held by a French girl, Michelle Mouton, in an Audi. And uh, all the Americans were disgusted at the time. (laughs) I mean, 
Oh, she, I mean, she's still, she's now press or second in command to the FIA chief. You know, she's a very clever girl, beautiful girl. But um, no, I think when women are good at something, they're very good at it, if you know what I mean. Because if, like, we had a lot of, of girls coming into the sport and they just didn't seem to make the grade. I don't know whether they were more interested in going out to the nightclubs or, you know, but like, We'd never go out. Before a big event, we wouldn't bed early, exercise, eat sensible meals, that sort of thing, you know. And uh, I don't know. Maybe there are some girls out there, but, you know, I've been at so many things now to do, like just even this season alone, and they're all awards for this, awards for that, awards. There's not one girl in it. There's not one. Mm. Which I think is... I would love to find a youngster that I could sort of be a mentor for or something like that. But it's very hard to mentor somebody if if she's in one car and you're in another car and certainly to sit beside a youngster who might very well roll you into a ditch. I'm afraid my, my nerves wouldn't stand that. Rosemary Smith, congratulations again on the Lifetime Achievement Award. And I must say it's been fascinating having you mm. in here. So thanks so much for, for popping you're into You're very this. welcome. All right, that's, that's good manners. A number of players have played, but they're still in the squad. I wonder, did you speak to any of them before deciding to accept the job? No, absolutely not. No, 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 obviously none of their business, you know, what I was going to do. It's a ridiculous question. <laughs> <laughs> we want to win football matches. There's nothing to tame, you know, some sort of animal, you know what I mean? And you obviously don't know Martin as well as you think you do. He makes me look like, what a Teresa. You know, he's a... Um, <laughs> Oh, no, and we want to win football matches. We've had a lovely few days. The hotel's been lovely. Food's been excellent. Training ground is lovely. No potholes. Uh, we've had footballs. It's been great. Bibs, everything. It's been major progress. And we want to win football matches. Amazing stuff there. Amazing stories. A Lifetime Achievement Award won by Rosemary at the Irish Times Sportswoman of the Year Awards. I'm glad we asked about the London... Sometimes you intend to ask about something in an interview and then particularly when you're talking to somebody like Rosemary, such a great storyteller and has so much to talk about, you forget about some of the things you really wanted to get to. So I'm glad we did talk about the... That trip to Mexico. I didn't realise yeah. Jimmy Greaves was involved. <laughs> yeah. Bizarrely. Jimmy Re- Greaves knows his way around a fan belt, apparently. Yeah, I mean, who knew that Jimmy Greaves knew his way around a fan belt? I mean, if you, if you, if you do have issues with your fan belt, then perhaps, you know, if you see Jimmy Greaves... If, listen, I know it doesn't sound all that likely, but if you do have a problem with your fan belt and you do then happen to see Jimmy Greaves walking past you, don't, <laughs> do don't just hesitate. say, ah, he, 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 he doesn't want to hear from me. You know, do ask him because he does know how to fix it. The other side of the sporting divide is something we want to focus on now. We want to talk to somebody who made a lasting impact on sports journalism, particularly on women working in the sports media. Melissa Ludka was with Sports Illustrated in the 1970s. And Melissa, what we really want to focus on at some point here is the lawsuit you took out against the commissioner of Major League Baseball, which was uh, quite a brave act, I would have thought, for, for anybody to take on really but we need to go a good bit further back than that just to get a sense of how you got to that point how did you actually get your start in sports journalism you know i got my start um through uh persistence um i think that's basically the uh the entryway for me i was an art history major in college i had never studied journalism i had never worked actually on a high school or college paper so it was not an auspicious start 
But what happened one evening is that I was invited over to a friend's house for dinner, and one of the uh, sports broadcasters from ABC Sports, who had been a former football player, Frank Gifford, was seated across the table from me. And at that moment, um, we started talking about sports. He had just done the 1972 broadcast from the Munich Olympics. And we spent the next two hours, you know, joined in by other people at the table, really talking sports. And it was at that time that I said a major thank you to both my parents, my mom and my dad, for having um, introduced me to sports as the oldest child in the family, uh, followed by a sister. It did not deter my father from loading us in the car and taking us to away football games and taking us to basketball games and any number of things. My mother was a diehard Red Sox fan and introduced me to baseball very early on. So the combination of them having done that and my having played sports throughout high school and college um, gave me sort of, I guess, what you'd call a leg up. Yeah, so le- the, sure, yeah, yeah, a leg up, and, and then a, a chance meeting, I guess, which is and a chance meeting. <laughs> so, um, at the end of that chance meeting, um, Frank turned to me and said, and I took this as an enormous compliment at the time. He said, "For a girl, you know a lot about sports." <laughs> And um, But he followed that up very quickly and said, you know, if you ever come to New York, I'd be happy to introduce you to some people at ABC Sports. So although I didn't have a trip planned to New York at that moment, uh, you can be sure that by the next day I did and followed up, and that became the... um, the eventual route in. I can share with you a little bit about what happened at ABC Sports. Yeah, please do. What kind of what kind of work were you doing there? What kind of an environment was that for you? Well, the answer is no work, <laughs> um, and here's why. Uh, Frank was there at the elevator to meet me. Did his round of introductions. I um, met many of the people who were the producers, etc. It was really quite an amazing day. We actually happened to bump into Rune Arledge, who was just an amazing you know man in the sports world at that point. So I had all of the opportunity to meet people, but I was drawn most of all to a group of women there, the only woman producer, Ellie Rieger, who was at that point doing a special on women in sports. And uh, Billie Jean King was, of course, had just played her match against Bobby Riggs. She happened to be in town, so I migrated over to the little room where they were doing their production work on women in sports and was so inspired over those next few days that I just decided I would move to New York and find my way. I mean, it was just one of those moments where there was no question that this would happen. So when I got back to ABC Sports, as I mentioned to you, I majored in art history, had no media experience, no broadcasting experience, so I thought I would try the route that many women did back then, and that is to apply to be a secretary. Um, You know, the foot-in-the-door strategy, Owen, you've heard of it? Yeah. Yes. Well, my foot in the door got caught in the door because I uh, did go home and study my stenography, which I'd never done before, trained myself a little in shorthand. I practiced my typing, and I did appear for my tryout at ABC, which in my case was with the, in the room where the typewriters were lined up for the secretarial pool. And I, with my results in hand, I marched up to the vice president's office, someone Frank had introduced me to, And with a resume in one hand and my typing and stenography results in the other, he looked me in the eye and he said, you will not be hired as secretary here. We don't think you'd stay very long, do you? (laughs) You you did graduate from Wellesley College, and it just doesn't seem as though this is really what you want to do. And I couldn't argue with him. I mean, that seemed about right. So the long and short of it is that I did not get a job um, with ABC Sports, but I did move to New York. 
I got a secretarial job with Harper's Bazaar magazine, a fashion magazine. And on weekends and on evenings, I did nothing but spend my time being a gopher for ABC Sports. For any of your listeners who aren't familiar with that term, it's exactly what it sounds like. Go for. Anything a producer or broadcaster wants you to go for, you go for. Do you want a cup of coffee? Do you want a martini? Do you want uh, your notes brought there? Do you want something? So um, that was my road in. I worked for, I think, $25 a day at events all over the country. I sat in production studios in the basement of, of ABC during the evenings and uh, met the directors, met the producers, met the announcers who were coming in to do their layovers. And um, in time, one of them suggested that I might want to go to SI and meet someone and do an interview there. And I um, took advantage of that, went over, and promptly got rejected. And um, so then I just decided that I'd do a letter-writing campaign to Sports Illustrated, to the hiring person there and the, for who's hiring researchers. And um, eventually, he read enough of my notes from the various venues that I was at with ABC Sports, I guess, to be convinced that I was, um, you know, a good person to hire. Melissa, because about five months mm -hmm. later, he hired me as a researcher at Sports Illustrated. That, as you said at the start, that's a serious amount of persistence paying off there. Um, did you ever become downbeat over the course of that process of trying to get your break in sports journalism? I would say many of the times when I sat at the desk being a secretary was a fairly, were sort of some downbeat moments. If you had to think about it as a drumming exercise, I'd say those were the downbeats, yes. There weren't, um, we're talking about the sort of 1974, I think, when you joined Sports Illustrated. How many, how many female sports researchers or reporters were there at well, that actually, time? Actually, there were a number of them because that was the, um, that was where fact checkers, I mean, researcher was a fancy word for fact checker. And Time Incorporated had back in the 1920s when Time began invented the notion of the fact checker. And the fact checker, I have a wonderful memo from that time that um you know when they first uh, when they first put this term together where it was very clear that fact checkers were to be women. And the women were to be the ones who would literally take care of the men's mistakes. You know, when a man wrote a story, he wanted to put it into the hands of a fact checker, a woman, who would then sweep through it and be sure that nothing he had written or that an editor had put in was inaccurate before it went to be published. And in this memo that was written about the job, there was sort of this cautionary uh, wording that said, you know, if something does sneak through, it will, of course, be the woman's fault. Mm. So it was really a category that had existed for a long time at at uh, Time Incorporated, and when Sports Illustrated was founded, it too hired mainly women to be its fact checkers. Um, it was only really after Newsweek's uh, women filed the first gender discrimination lawsuit in 1970, which Time Incorporated um, faced a similar one soon after that made the point of saying that you can't do this. Um, you know, by that time, there were laws put on the book about gender discrimination and court cases and findings by agencies that said you cannot just pick a category and put people in it by gender. And so by the time I got there in 1974, there was a smattering of, of uh, young men as well as young women in this category Many of them, of course, were only looking at it as a coffee stop along the way to becoming a writer. 
uh, for women, it was still a lot more challenging to kind of get out of that category and, you know, be advanced. How did you advance yourself? How did you get to the point in the 1977 World Series where you were outside a locker room trying to get in, trying to report? Well, um, I was very fortunate because I guess from those postcards that I had written from ABC, there was a sense that I knew something about sports broadcasting. So I was, uh, my first assignment, which I was disappointed at at first because it wasn't a sports beat, was the TV radio column, which had just been initiated because, of course, TV was becoming such a force in sports media at the time. And I had the great fortune to work with a wonderful man named Bill Leggett, who took one look at me and said, you're now my reporter, you know, as well as being researcher, fact checker. And he would take me on all these interviews. So, you know, oh, and the irony was that there I was making calls to the very people who wouldn't hire me at ABC Sports. And this became a very influential column that they would actually read and have to respond to my calls. So there was a tiny bit of you know, of, of pleasure and irony in that. But what there was mostly was that he taught me how to be a journalist. And it didn't necessitate me having to go to a ballpark, go to a ball field, travel, you know, do all of that, that sometimes was more challenging for a woman to do. He would just scoop me along and off we'd go to one of the networks, which was, you know, a two-minute walk away. We were in the Time Inc. building in Rockefeller Center and all the networks were right there. So I had the great privilege of being able to learn the journalism that I had never learned, and do it right there, um, you know, with a person who took me seriously, and and said, come up with ideas. Why don't you try writing some? And so by August of 1975, I would, had written my first full column for Sports Illustrated in the TV radio page. And it happened to be about the hiring of Phyllis George, Miss America, as the um, as a sports broadcaster for CBS a trend, by the way, that has not stopped since right. then. But, yeah, that's something we might get onto because I am interested in your thoughts on... Yeah, the, the, so anyway, but, you know, so then, um, you know, I always did want a sports beat. The sport I loved was baseball, so it was always something I thought about wanting to do. But, you know, there's only so many people who are assigned to the beat, um, and until someone left, it wasn't open. Um, but when Stephanie Salter... Uh, who was the um, sort of junior baseball reporter by dint of her gender and also the timing of her hiring, decided to leave for a freelance career. It opened up, and so I volunteered to do what's called keep track of the baseball books, which was to take all of the agate-type you know, box scores from the night before and log them into the books that would be kept for our baseball writer. I mean, people can't imagine this now because any box score, any fact you want – is it, you know, a click away. But at that time, I had to take all the newspapers, all the agate box scores, and write down in very specific boxes so that when it came time to write up the baseball week for what happened that week, all of those facts would be there at a thing, you know, um, just a moment's notice. They would all be in these spiral notebooks. And so I just took that on, you know, while I was still on the baseball beat, I mean, on the TV radio beat. And so by the next season, which was 1976, after she had left, I actually was officially appointed as to fill her place as the junior baseball reporter. Melissa, could you take us to that moment in 1977, the following year yeah. at the World Series, where you're looking to do your job, you're looking to get into the locker room after the Yankees played the Dodgers in a World Series game. What happens there? Well, actually, it was before the series began, and I need to take you back just a tiny bit, because being based in New York, 
I spent most of my time during the season either at Yankee or Shea Stadium, depending on whether the American or National League was playing. And so by the end of the 77 season, um, I, I was very a well-known person around that place, in part because I stood out as probably the, often the only woman who was there. But I'd really practiced a lot of quiet diplomacy. Um, you know, I had not asked for access during almost a season, season and a half, you know, of reporting on a daily basis. But with my quiet diplomacy, I had gotten the ability to go into Billy Martin's office through a side door in the clubhouse in that season, 1977. And so when it came time for the World Series, my actual ask during that World Series was not originally to go into the locker room. My original ask of the Dodgers team was to say, would you give me the same access to to Tommy Lasorda's office as I have to Billy Martin's? Because that way I felt I could at least help the sort of Sports Illustrated reporting team. Now, this is even though I have a press pass that says on it that I have access to the clubhouse. So I'm playing the mother may I game still. It's hardly like I'm barging you know, in and saying I demand access. I'm going and asking. So I started with Tommy Lasorda. I could barely get my request out when Tommy kind of put me over to Tommy John, who was the player rep, and said, talk to him. You need to talk to him. And so the moment that I started my conversation with him, Tommy John kind of escalated it by saying, well, let me just go back to the team. Let's have them vote and see, you know, what they feel. Because if you're going to come in, I want you to know kind of what you're going to be up against. So I said, you know, I mean, I walked away. That was the day before the series was supposed to start. I walked away. I said, fine. You know, I mean, that's okay. I wasn't going to argue with that at that point. So um, the next day he came out and he said, yeah, it was a majority. They'd say, fine, they understand. You've got the credential. If you need to come in, you know, come in. And so that was how it was set up. I mean, I had access, according to the Dodgers, and I had access to Billy Martin's office. So I was feeling like, you know, I could I could contribute to, you know, the team. It seems incredible to us. <laughs> of course, it seems incredible to anyone now that the, that vote would even have to happen, that you would be able, you would have well, to... Of course. Yeah, of but, course. Uh, but it yeah. did happen, and the players didn't have a problem. Um, the players didn't have a problem. So where did the problem did. come? The problem came because Tommy John asked me one favor afterwards. And, of course, I, I said yes. I mean, he asked me to go and find the PR director, one of the PR directors for the Dodgers team, let them know that the vote had happened, that I might go in. And so I did. I went and found a guy named Steve Brenner. And, um, you know, Steve looked ashen when I told him this and sort of walked away without comment. And in the fifth inning, I was actually called up to the main press box. I was sitting on the auxiliary press box. Our writer was up in the main one. And the um, baseball commissioner's right-hand man, the person in charge of the press, uh, Bob Weir's, came to, to me at the back of the press box and informed me that the commissioner's office had not given me the right to go into the clubhouse, and therefore it didn't matter what the Dodgers vote was. I was not to go in, and I wouldn't be going in. And that's how it became a federal lawsuit four months later, because the commissioner stuck by his decision not to allow me or presumably any other woman to go in, and um, that was uh, when the World Series was over, and we had tried to negotiate more with the commissioner's office. I'd written letters. My editor had met with them. There was absolutely no movement on it, and it was in December that I was informed by 
my editor that Time Inc. was prepared to go through and do a federal lawsuit, and would I become the plaintiff? Was it explained I, to you? Yeah, was it explicitly said to you that the reason you're not allowed in, I mean, there didn't seem to be any other reason, but the reason that you weren't allowed into the clubhouse was because you're a woman? Well, I basically had asked that that night, and that was incorporated into memos I wrote to the commissioner and the rest. It was very clear that it was, that it was an issue of my being a woman. It was, there was no doubt about that. That was never, the, never an argument. You said the Time Inc. were willing to go, uh, and you eventually did go to court on this one. Was there any doubt in your mind that that was the right course of action? Were you thinking in your own head, I should probably do this, but it could end up being more hassle than it's worth? No, I don't think I ever hesitated. Um, I think there were moments after it began when I realized that I had not had the slightest awareness of the level of the intensity, the level and the pace of interest that this this combination of um, of, 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 of forces would uh, ignite, uh, and those forces being baseball being the national pastime, the other force being the image, and I'm going to say the image, not the reality, but the image of a woman barging her way into a place that she doesn't belong. Now remember. I was more mother may I than I was a barging, you know, uh, woman at that point. But nonetheless, that's the perception. And the third thing, which probably catapulted it even faster and with more velocity, was the fact that there may be nude men on the other side of the door. So you had nudity, baseball, and women in the midst of the women's movement, you know, in the United States at that point. And that was a very, very potent um, uh, mix of, um, of issues that, uh, you know, generated um, any number of cartoons, huge amounts of uh, articles, columns, um, and a lot of press coverage about me and involving me, um, including national TV, many radio things, uh, speeches that I suddenly was giving. And I was 26 years old. Um, so it was, um, I don't, you know, you can't know all of this before you say to your editor, yes, I'll do this, which is something you say on principle. Um, but then you just have to rise to the occasion and figure out how you're going to handle it. And you felt you handled it okay? You know, I think so. I mean, I look back on it. I'm writing a memoir now about that time. And so I've been kind of living in my papers and living in, those columns and uh, living in the videos from that time. And, um, you know, you, I kind of <laughs> you know, look at some of them and say, oh, my God, you could have, you know, could have done a little better there. But, you know, I think all in all, um, given um, what was put on me at the time, um, you know, I often think that, um, you know, my upbringing, you know, my parents, uh, you know, the fact that I you know, had a solid place to come back to, you know, um, a family that, uh, that, that loved me and places to return that felt safe and warm, uh, a great network of friends. Um, that all sustained me, I think, during, you know, what were some fairly um, down moments, particularly when I would make the mistake of reading the coverage about me. Was there a lot of negative coverage? And if so, how did you feel about that at the time? Were you angry? Were you humiliated in any way not that you should have been but no, nobody I don't think I ever felt humiliation yeah, no, I think yeah. I, I I felt more um a sense that you know my god you know they just got me wrong 
you know, and it was very hard. It was impossible to kind of get through the clutter at that point. It was before we had blogs and the way to kind of get your own, you know, sense out there. And as many interviews as I would, I would give, you know, again, we see this today still with women sports, you know, sports writers and sports broadcasters. And that is that there's a certain stereotype that people want you to be. And it's very tough to kind of push past that. But I have to tell you, Owen, I mean, compared to what women sportscasters and broadcasters face today, I face nothing because we didn't have social media. We didn't have the anonymity of comments. And so, you know, we had a few anonymous letters appear in our, um, you know, mailboxes. And I don't mean just me, but other women at the time, you know, talking about us being on our prostitutional ass and calling us all sorts of names, et cetera, et cetera. But compared to the vitriol, that is um, out there now, um, you know, on various comment uh, comment places, and it, it, it you know, in retrospect, it w- it was nothing. <laughs> yeah, but I'm kind of interested in your motivation at the time because you called it a point of principle. You clearly needed to take the stand to do your own job properly, but did you also, when you won the case, did you feel you were winning it on behalf of? Is, is it too grand to say on behalf of the future of women Absolutely. in sports media? And it's not too grand to say because what had kept me and sustained me, kept me going and sustained me in many ways during that time were letters I would get from the from young women, women who were in middle school and high school talking about how much they love sports. You have to remember that this was five years into the passage of Title IX. Um, you know, it took a while for that for Title IX to kind of really get itself in action where it made a difference, actual difference in the daily lives and experiences of girls in schools. Uh, You know, people, my daughter can't believe it, nor can her contemporaries believe it when I tell her that when I played basketball in middle school, which I was lucky to be able to do, it was only because I think I grew up in a university town where they actually believe girls should play sports, But, you know, this was in the early 60s. I was only allowed, as were my teammates, to dribble the ball three times before I had to pass it. And there were six of us who played because four of us were not allowed to cross the midcourt line. It was too strenuous for us to do that. What? Oh, absolutely. That's true. We were called stationary forwards and stationary guards. And then we had two rovers. Now, I got to play Rover a lot, so I wasn't always constrained by this. But, you know, imagine what it's like. You've ever seen five-year-olds uh, go out and play soccer in the scrum, you know, that moves around the field following the ball? <laughs> if you have to dribble three times, not only do you know that you have to dribble three times, but your opponent knows. So whenever you stop, it's like there's suddenly these windmills around you, you know. Um, so it was, it, it, needless to say, a tediously slow game with very little scoring that actually took place. Melissa, that's incredible to think back on that. But can I just ask you finally, you've alluded a couple of times to maybe how the, the roles that women play in sports media now. And of course, there are lots of fine, superb female sports writers, Juliette McCurr, Christine Brennan, these kind of people. Uh, but I, I think maybe, are you alluding more to maybe the way the sport is televised in the US where certain uh, types of women are supposed to fill certain types of roles? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are superb 
superb women out there covering this sport. I was just at the um, you know Association of Women in Sports Media con- convention, their 25th anniversary one last June, and met just phenomenal women who are in this business. They're behind the cameras, they're producing, they're in front of the cameras. Some of them, they are writing. I mean, they're beat writers. They're, they're covering every major sport. It's phenomenal, and it's great. But yes, the face of women in sports media is the face that and is the experience that many people see in broadcast media. And when I think back to the mid-70s, when Phyllis George, who had been Miss America, was hired by CBS to take the place of Jane Chastain, a woman who actually grew up in new sports, but she had been so criticized vocally by women and men when they put her on in 1974 that they replaced her with Phyllis George. And when Phyllis George left, you know, CBS Sports, I think, flew, I think it was 17 women they flew in in their search to replace her. Not one of them was, was flown in because she knew anything about sports. Each of them in their own way was a beauty queen. So I don't know that we've moved too far past that in terms of the general perception of women as sports broadcasters, even though... There are some amazing women doing terrific stuff. Hannah Storm, you know, Jameel Hill, Leslie Visser, Doris Burke, Susan Waldman. I mean, you know, you can name the people who are out there doing it, aside from the wonderful people you've mentioned who are covering it, you know, for newspapers whose faces we never see. Yeah. But let me read you one line from a contemporary of mine, a woman named Jane Gross, who was, her father was a syndicated sports columnist, and she was the first woman to um, be, be allowed into the NBA locker rooms when she was writing for uh, Newsday. And she wrote, recently wrote um, the following in a, a, a Facebook post. She said, good thing you didn't have to be blonde, beautiful, and willing to make this sexist video in the bad old days, or I'd be selling nail polish in Woolworths instead of at the tail end of a grand career. Mm-hmm. Melissa, that's a perfect point to end with. Listen, thanks so much. It's, it's an amazing story. And thanks so much for coming on and talking to us today. It's been great. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it, Owen. And thank you all for, uh, for wanting to, to, uh, to share this story with your viewers. That's really interesting talking to Melissa there just about the, what has changed, but in some cases, such as American sport on TV, mm. what, what hasn't changed, Heather? Yeah, it's, it's a not... Lot, a lot maybe hasn't hasn't moved on I don't know yeah it's not as blatant as hiring the latest Miss World or the latest Miss Oklahoma or whatever um, but certainly there is there appear to be very defined rules for women uh, on television in America and that's more often than not it's sideline reporting and while it's good that they have a presence maybe at the same time as Melissa was suggesting there it, it you shouldn't be pigeonholed either, just as a result of uh, gender. But certainly, she she reckons it's 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 a lot lot better. I don't think there could be any doubt about that, uh, given uh, the story we've just heard from her about her lawsuit. There was a great piece. Uh, if you look it up, I'll send it. I'll, I'll tweet a link onto it at some stage uh, by Diane Shash. Uh, Diane was another great pioneering. She was a sports columnist. Could have been the first female American sports columnist. I stand to be corrected in that one, but she, uh, one of the collection of the greatest American sports writing of all time is a piece that she did 
entitled, I've talked about it, I think, on the show before. Oh, I think it's Oh No, Not Another Boring Interview with Steve Carlton. And it's a, a spin on the fact that usually the journalists have to go chasing the, in fact, they always have to go chasing the sports stars for interviews and the sports star always comes up with some excuse why they can't do it. She kind of flips that all in its head, but it's usually funny, but Grantland did a great piece a couple of years ago where they took that and then spoke to her about doing that piece and about her own uh, role, her yeah, own life a as piece. a sports columnist. Yeah, so I'll piece. try and dig that one out for you and uh, retweet or, or tweet a link on uh, on that one. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed today's show and uh, enjoyed the last minute shopping over the weekend and I guess we'll chat to you again on Christmas week. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Kieran. Take care. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.